if I make an elf woman come into a house in my story, any Icelander would find this is banal or they would know the story that I'm telling. But a foreign reader would see that as some kind of magic realism. Coming up on In Contrast, author Andre Sneer Magnusson. Amilan Stavans and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Andre Sneer Magnusson is an Icelandic writer of novels, poetry, plays, short stories, and essays. Magnusson's novel Love Star and his children's book The Story of the Blue Planet have received numerous international awards. His most recent book is The Casket of Time. We'll begin with a reading from The Casket of Time. The Three Sisters A long, long time ago, when humans were few and roamed the land as hunter-gatherers, three sisters were born. Their mother quickly saw that one was blind and deaf and could only talk. One was blind and mute and could only hear. One was deaf and mute and could only see. The sisters grew up, each making up for what the others lacked. The sister who could hear had super-sensitive hearing. The sister who could see had eyes sharper than an eagle's, and the talking sister could shout so loud that wild beasts took flight. And so together they roamed the forest and knew their way better than anyone with perfect sight and hearing. The people, however, were scared of the sisters and thought they would bring bad luck. Their mother was forced to abandon them in a clearing and leave them to die. But the wildest of beasts didn't harm them. The seeing one could gaze deep into an animal's eyes. The hearing one listened compassionately to them. The one who spoke stroked them and whispered kind words to the animals. Cows came and gave them milk. Horses carried them across mountains. And wolves brought them rabbits and pheasants to eat. They found shelter in a gigantic hive that the bees built for them. Andre, welcome to In Contrast. Thank you very much. I want to start with your role as an activist. You are a prominent nature activist in Iceland, the country you come from, and in other parts of the world as well, and the author of a book that came in 2008, called Dreamland, a self-help manual for a frightened nation. Tell me a bit about how you came to become an eco-activist voice in your own country and to write this book that really divided the population of Iceland. Well, actually, I came into that from my background in poetry, sci-fi, and children's literature, even uh, theater. And I wasn't really trained as an economist or a natural scientist or the dam issues, hydro engineering or anything. But I felt there was something deeply wrong in Iceland when the greatest nesting place of pink-footed geese in the world was to be flooded for not a whole aluminum smelter, but like uh, 20% of the power that an aluminum smelter would need. And I felt this was so deeply disturbing that we, kind of in the height of economic prosperity and in the history of Iceland, we were actually considering sacrificing kind of a species, or not the whole species, but like giving a, a whole species a blow. And this disturbed me, but I didn't really know how to write about it. And the issue was so polarized that almost all the language 
for the issue was actually kind of ruined. It's almost like you have it now here in the States, the gun debate, the Trump debates, you know, all these words and chunks of language that are used and thrown at each other. And I wanted to do an attempt of navigating through the issue with new metaphors, new language, so I actually don't touch nature until page 200 in the book. So I use nature more as a case study about ideas and how politicians can narrow down our worldview or our uh, frame our decision-making into uh, an ultimatum of we either have to sacrifice these geese or we will have a welfare system and schools and stuff. I kind of decode the language and the first 200 pages I'm basically laying a groundwork of metaphors that I can use to refer to then when I finally get to the nature part. You are the author of a number of books that are for young adults and for children, and the most recently published is The Casket of Time, which in many ways is also an environmentalist book and an activist book. I want to really go deep into both your activism, Dreamland, and focus in The Casket of Time. But before I do that, Andre, I'd like for you to reflect a bit on coming from Iceland and being translated into English and to other languages. You've been translated to many languages. Is there a particular view of nature and a particular view of time that Iceland has as a nation or as a culture. In no way do I want to stereotype or simplify, but civilizations have these different approaches to visions that connect with time and space. So I wonder if you could reflect a bit on Icelandic views of time and nature. Yeah, of course, there are lots of stereotypes. And sometimes, actually, when you're growing up as a writer, you try to deny them and avoid these stereotypes or pretend that we actually don't believe in elves and all these things that people speak about in Iceland. But in Iceland, you could say that landscape and history is very deeply woven together, and actually landscape and fantasy also. So when you grow up, you would be maybe afraid of a cliff because your grandfather or somebody told you that this was an enchanted cliff and 200 years ago a shepherd boy vanished into that cliff and never came out again because he was seduced by an elf woman. And the folklore, especially for myself, was very present when I was growing up. I grew up in the States until I was nine, catching uh, tadpoles and things. And so I came to Iceland also with maybe a fresh set of eyes. So I had like a double perspective. Just for example, the sun. We don't take the sun for granted. So uh, we have like 24-hour sunlight in the summertime and then much less in the darkest days. You could say also nature... That is the change of nature and natural formations. We have mountains in Iceland that are younger than myself. We have lava fields that are bigger than Manhattan that are actually younger than myself. And we have to find a new name for it. And then, of course, we have, in terms of global warming, we can see that happening with our bare eyes. So we have the glaciers that used to be eternal bodies of extreme nature and geological force. Suddenly you see this silent spring. That is the silent spring where... Uh, the glacier is there, and then the next year, the glacier is not there. So you could say that how Nate has left geological speed and is changing on a human level, that is something that I deeply both disturbs me but also inspires me, and that goes again to mythology because we can access Nordic mythology in, in the original text and in the original language. And in that era, the, the mythological era, 
where the world was being either created or destroyed. You can feel some connection to that when you see the big forces actually moving in front of your own eyes. The young generation in Iceland is both connected to the mythology and also aware and conscious of how this environmental transformation is taking place? Well, it's difficult to say on behalf of a whole generation. And of course, Icelandic youth is just like the Snapchatting global youth in the Western world. Like for my own children, we take them every summer to uh, my grandfather's farm, which is just below the Arctic Circle. And last summer, we almost could not make it all the way north. And then my kids said, are you going to take away my childhood? So they actually love and have access to it. And maybe actually they don't really know they are having something different from maybe New York kids or uh, children in the States. So actually, I think they have a connection that are not totally aware of. So my children have seen seals and glaciers and volcanic eruptions and things that most children in the world maybe have not seen and, and screaming bird cliffs and stuff like that. The Cascade of Time is delightful fantasy narrative for young adults that plays with time as a main theme, but also in terms of narrative, it brings together the mythological a fairy tale with the current situation and taking place in the present. And I use the word situation because you use it all the time. At the very beginning and throughout the novel, there is a description of how the situation, put in between quotes, has affected us all in such a way that it has fractured or disrupted our relationship with the present. The problems that we're facing as a society, as a culture, as a civilization are so deep that characters consider avoiding them altogether and entering these caskets in order to be frozen or to be isolated. But I want to ask you first, Andrea, about the word situation. I am frequently puzzled by how it's used in English. We use it in a very flexible, malleable way to describe all sorts of things. A situation can be a compromising juncture. A situation could be something that we don't quite understand. A situation could be a political moment. A situation could be the entire present. What's a situation for you? Well, yes, that's a deep question. <laughs> so a situation, I kind of use it in an ambiguous way in the book, and I don't only refer it to in terms of nature, but there's something troubling people. There is something that they have to face. There is something that is standing in front of them and they have to have an effort to fix. And people seem so disempowered that as soon as this escape emerges, the time box that isolates you from time and, and you can uh, use that to wait for better times. And I, some kind of a idea of if everybody waits for better times, will the times become better? And if you avoid the situations, do you actually mature or go through the catharsis of actually changing things? And so kind of like a parody, I think I was also, of course, reflecting our time because politicians are always hoping that, well, they promise when they're going to tackle climate change, for example, they normally use a date like 2024 as a starting date or something. Far enough so... It won't be them that have to do it and face the trouble. And then also how we are also hoping that Elon Musk or somebody will come with a magical solution. So we won't actually have to take any responsibility. We'll just have to buy the gadget that this tech giant will bring us. So it's, of course, some kind of a parody of our times, but also using magical elements, almost banal elements like the Snow White's casket 
and seeing if I could find another version or another angle to that narrative. On the other hand, this very new technology, the time box, which allows people to take a leave of absence and escape while things improve, could be seen, and I think I'm looking at it from the perspective of an adult and not from the perspective of a young reader who is reading this book and for whom this book, The Casket of Time, is meant as an escape that is cowardly. If we don't face our problems, if we just take a leave of absence and let those problems fix themselves, then we can come back. And that is part of the irony. One of the big moments of activism is telling people, do something about the present moment. The book is suggesting that there might not be any solution for the present moment, and it's better to take a leave of absence. The book also grew kind of out of, we had very turbulent times in Iceland. And you could say from 2000 to uh, 2008, when the economy collapsed. And that period required great effort of activism, actually. Lots of people had to kind of put down their day job or their project that they were working on, or even an artwork and start trying to fix the world and push Iceland into the right direction. And that is very exhausting. It's almost like you burn your candle from both ends. So when I had been angry and activist for like almost 10 years through the Dreamland project, and we actually did succeed in many ways. We did push the machine out of areas. This biggest nesting place of pink-footed geese in the world is now being protected. But I was kind of regretting the time that went into this, regretting all this effort, regretting all these feelings. And you could also say that the casket of time is in some way my own reflection on that time. And I'm kind of wondering, was it worth it? And also then looking forward in the big task that we're faced with, because I kind of thought, wouldn't it have been much better if this situation was not going on? But then, of course, what happened in the activism is the people that I love the most and my best friends and people that inspired me most and things that have taught me the most of economy and politics and Machiavellian order of the world and all these things kind of that gave me most of the things that I could say was myself, of course, came through being deeply involved in very small local issues. I wouldn't say the biggest nesting place of pink-footed geese was a local issue, so you could say that the book is also reflecting on my own wish to escape, but it was also, while I was writing it, my own escape from activism. I just needed to refuel my joy and my imagination by going wild in a children's young adult book, still having an important message to tell. The going wild might be quite tangible in the mythical or folktale aspect of the narrative. It is about an ancient kingdom of Pangea, where there is a king who has a daughter called Obsidiana, and Obsidiana's mother dies almost at childbirth, and he looks for ways to protect her from the passing of time and the catastrophes around, and creates this silken casket in which time cannot penetrate. But of course, in the book, the escaping of time through this casket is also a treacherous and complicated situation that backfires. This is very much in the spirit, it seems to me, of maybe Alice in Wonderland. You mentioned Snow White in the Galaxy of Dwarves, and in this book there are also a number of dwarves that are the ones that come to the king and offer this idea of the casket. The book has been compared also to The Hobbit, I'd love to hear 
What books, what fairy tales that are not exclusively from Iceland impacted you when you were young and might be running underneath in a tacit way in the story of this ancient kingdom of Pangaea? In Iceland, almost everything is explained by a story. There is lots of geological forces. You would have a mountain or a rift in the mountain or a big valley And it would be explained by a, a giant that sat there or some event that split it. And I was looking at the picture of the planet, how South America and Africa used to be a single continent. And I was wondering, doesn't this need an explanation? We found this out long after we wrote all our mythology. So how do you explain how South America and Africa split apart? So I create this kingdom, this uh, Pangaea kingdom, and the king that promised half his kingdom. So, of course, this is the promise of half a kingdom, and all these things are very uh, related to the classical Grimm's fairy tale. And I was uh, also deeply inspired by traditional folklore. Can you actually tell a story with a king, a princess, and dwarves, and do that again like it has been done for, you know, a thousand years or something? And can you still find a reflection in that story to the current times that we're living in? The story is also seeking inspiration into the crazy uh, Shakespearean kings. So I would say the king has lots of Shakespeare in him. He's a tragic king, also Greek mythology. He's some kind of a King Midas, a tragic king that accomplishes everything, gets everything, but of course, by doing that, loses everything. Then the princess is also maybe a metaphor also for fame, religion, and worship. When I was writing the book, I was invited to interview the Dalai Lama. So he's also like a living, almost mythological character. He's been uh, reincarnated 14 times. So in a strange way, this child was found five years old in Tibet, and he told me about his childhood when he just wished he was a normal boy and didn't like the holy whip that was used to make him do his studies. So also I actually encountered like current modern mythological figures that inspired me without using them one-on-one. -on -one. But this fact of being special, being taken out of and raised to a throne, I thought that was something that I wanted to explore. Tell me a bit more about this. At a time at the end of the second decade of the 21st century, when democracy is the default system of government that we prefer and fight for, when monarchies are either a thing of the past or vanishing in the very position of a king is questioned. Why are we so connected in fairy tales with kings and princesses and kingdoms? What is it about our psyche that relates us even at a time when these characters are, as you were putting it, more imaginary, more mythical than real? A kingdom can also be a metaphor. Like I was also exploring in Love Star, my sci-fi novel, exploring the mythology of our time, the mythology of success, the mythology of world fame. The ultimate accomplishment in our current regime is the Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, the Bill Gates narrative of actually becoming kind of a global king. That is the quest. That is the ultimate success of a person It could be a farm boy. The American dream is kind of the dream of becoming some kind of a king. So I don't think this is as far away as distant kingdoms. Of course, it's a tribute to basically the history of storytelling. 
So the history of storytelling, of course, has the kings, but it also has the story of the peasant, the everyday person that is swept into the events of something great. So when I was quite young as a student, I was working in the archives of the Manuscript Institute in Iceland. I had access directly from manuscripts that were written in 1400 and from the mouth of the songs of women that were born 1890 that were singing on uh, audio tapes, songs that they learned from their grandmothers, that they learned from their grandmothers. And also from there you could see that a fairy tale was never fixed, like we're used to the Snow White fairy tale to be a fixed fairy tale. But when you listen to these women, you could see the fragments, the almost you could call it like a remix, how uh, another fairy tale would kind of blend in or long song. And that's why I don't really like the distinction always of 8 to 12 years old and 12 to 16 or something that you see in the book market. Because you could see in the manuscripts that the imagination, the fairy tale, even the most simple fairy tale used to be a shared experience. The oldest was sharing with the youngest, not a special culture that only the youngest have access to, but something that the oldest and the youngest could discuss and share. So I've been always inspired by creating fairy tales or stories that you read it as a child, and then you come back to it when you're older and you find out that the author was actually both respecting you, that is, you find out that the story might even be better than you expected it to be, but it will have layers that you didn't understand as a child, but in a subconscious way, you actually did understand them. And you come back to the story and you kind of reflect again on how it is to think as a child, how the world looks like. So I thought if you could accomplish anything in literature, making a children's book or a fairy tale or a young adult book that has the power to stick in your mind for decades, just like Alice in Wonderland, or just like everybody remembers Charlotte's Web, how that ended. I also like these kind of dilemmas, putting dilemmas into it, these impossible dilemmas, like I did in The Blue Planet, where the main character had put a nail in the sun and putting kind of big, sometimes obscure dilemmas, but they reflect something else. I wonder if I can get you to go farther on this reference that you made to the constraining qualities or the constraining designs that the book market and the book industry have. You are writing, in this case, The Casket of Time for young adults, but you are complaining that the way we divide ages and we market books is limiting. What are the challenges that a young adult writer faces today in order to make a book reach the audience that maybe the industry itself envisions for that book or for that author, but at the same time jump go beyond, defied, disrupt what those patterns might be? I have kind of a strange literary career. So you could say that my career is based on almost betraying your audience, you could say. That is, I started with poetry and those books did actually quite well. And I was asked for more poetry and then I made a children's book. When I was asked for a new children's book, I did sci-fi that children can't understand. And when I was asked for more sci-fi, I did non-fiction. And actually, I kind of think it's always a challenge both to renew yourself and also I actually like erasing boundaries because I'm raised on nonfiction, children's books, poetry, sci-fi and nonfiction. My brain needs all these nutrients. Also, if you look at yourself as a person, you talk to your grandmother, that is historical fiction. 
you think of the fate of your children, that is sci-fi. You look around you today, that is just current affairs, like material for a normal novel. So I've always been kind of tempted to explore children's literature and grown-up literature and who should access poetry. It's just some kind of thing that I've always been interested in. Maybe some kind of anti-marketing thinking or something. I believe that if we are segregating us too much, of course, it's important to give out messages who should buy what or uh, help people to find what is appropriate to what is. So I'm not discrediting totally some kind of age ranking. But for my own literature, I like breaking boundaries. In a world that is so segregated into market groups, target groups, which sometimes in a way alienates us from each other. We believe that because I like this, I am different from the person that likes the other. I really think deep down that we are in core very the same. That is, what one person can experience and what he can like and love is something that somebody else is very likely to be able to like and love himself. I've kind of been wanting to, in this world of segregation, to make like a family book. If I make a book that the father, the teenage daughter, and maybe the nine-year-old boy kind of share in a way. And I think that is important to kind of bridge also. This has to be even more true, if that is possible, with a writer of your caliber coming from Iceland, that in the age of globalism and in the age of translation, the literature that people read is literature that travels very fast, that is written in a particular location, in your case, in Iceland, but it's almost by definition designed to be translated, to be read by people beyond the 330,000 people that are in Iceland, where a book that is a huge bestseller can be a 20,000 or 30,000 copies success, whereas in another country that number can be very reduced. So in the age when translation is so readily available, does one write for a foreign reader, even though one it is placed in a very local, defined location? This is actually a, a very interesting, you could say almost like a trap. It's a really interesting dilemma, actually, that if you know of a foreign audience, like in my first books, my sci-fi novel, Love Star, I always claimed it was untranslatable. So I was kind of surprised when it was translated. Also, my book Dreamland, I did that one after The Blue Planet had been translated to 30 languages. So it would have been obvious to try to follow that success and write another Blue Planet into that audience. But I wrote Dreamland, and that is extremely local in how I wrote it. It's very much about the Icelandic language. It's very much about very concrete military base issues in the southwest corner of Iceland, also at certain time in a village in the east coast of Iceland. So I actually just claimed that that book was not translatable and it was not meant to be translated. So I was kind of worried actually when they started translating it because I just wasn't sure if people thought what I was writing would make any sense. But then eventually it was published in Japan and translated to German and then to English. And it was a really important lesson, actually, to find something that you did not intend for a foreign reader, because if I had been thinking of the foreign reader, I would have skipped so many nuances. I would never have gone into language because I would have thought that's too complicated for a foreign reader. And I would have tried to use more general assumptions. But 
kind of unexpectedly, what I found out is that just by looking really close at the military base issue in Iceland and the power structure that was happening there and the rhetorics around that base, I found out that this was mirroring the rhetorics that were taking place around military bases all over the world and how people did not want to close their base because it was such an important part of the employment and how the people on the ground were kind of contributing to keep a machine running that was maybe quite destructive in a global context. But this is also a trap because you can easily make things that are astounding for a foreigner by mentioning something that is really normal in Icelandic. So it's a delicate balance. If I make an elf woman come into a house in my story, any Icelander would find this is banal or they would know the story that I'm telling. But a foreign reader would see that as some kind of magic realism. So I think it's really important to be rooted in your culture, for me at least, and speak to the children of Iceland or the society that I have any kind of direct influence on. But I also think that it's incredibly important to share ideas in the world and that very nuanced and local talks or, or discussions or stories are important to be shared. And if it's told in the right way, just like a hundred years of solitude or something, or the maestro and Margarita a story that I don't really have any idea what deep reference the writer's house in Maestro and Margarita actually had in the context of Bulgakov when he was writing it. But for me, that story was one of the most important stories I actually read in my life, and I didn't really miss anything. So I think if literature is good, it can go very deeply local, and actually, the more local it becomes, it unexpectedly can become more global. We're coming to the conclusion or to the end of our conversation, and I have one more question, and I want to use it to go back to the casket of time. Is literature itself a casket of time for you as an author, a way to bend past the present and the future, to synthesize and synchronize it, to escape it? How is the connection between literature and the manipulation of time? Well, literature, uh, yeah, of course, transcends us into future, past, present. I think a good book takes us out of the illusion of the current time and helps us to perhaps see, perceive, and understand time in a much bigger context. And I think it's actually crucial now in our times now that where we, for example, see a scientist, say, the year 2100, and we feel so distant from that time that it feels irrelevant. It feels like it has nothing to do with our lives. I think that is, for example, almost in a practical way, something literature does, is that it can open up that time as intimate space and make us understand our responsibility and kind of importance of connecting to that kind of time. And that's actually what I'm trying to do in my next book. So creating intimate space, you could call it pancake sci-fi, that is not emphasizing on technology or AI or something, but just the basic fact that we want to continue to be humans and we want to continue to live on an earth with animals. And that is the most important part. Like a, a child that is born today, his greatest loved one in his life will be still around in the year 2160. So I think what happens in a book, in 200 pages, you can kind of 
reinstall a, a thought in a poem you can kind of create a new thought but i feel like a news article or a, a blog post or something is less likely to do that you need this deep thought process that comes through literature it has been an enormous pleasure to have Andre Snyder Magnuson, the author of The Casket of Time and Dreamland, a self-help manual for a frightened nation in In Contrast. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much, Elon. Shortly after my interview with Andre Magnuson, in which he said that Elon Musk, the South African entrepreneur, engineer and inventor, is a mythic hero, he emailed me a photograph of a sculpture by a Chilean-born, New York-based artist called Sebastián Errazuriz. The photo depicted Musk in a classical pose. It looks as if it was made of porcelain. Musk looks at the heavens. He has a plumed helmet and a pair of angel wings. And he has a flamethrower at his hip. You could be excused for mistaking Musk for Prometheus, or perhaps Odysseus. And that's the point. Erasuris' message is that Musk is indeed a modern icon. The artist has also created sculptures of Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, Steve Jobs of Apple, and Google's Larry Page and Sergey Brin. If these characters in the artist's depiction look like Napoleon Bonaparte, it is because there is something utterly romantic in his intention. Musk, Jobs, Bezos, and the rest aren't only types. They are archetypes, or maybe prototypes. Contemporary life isn't deprived of heroics. We find heroism in common people. Firemen on 9-11, maids taking care of wealthy children while their parents are away, and so on. But what Magnusson was hinting at is that myths are also part and parcel of our daily life. They aren't only Nelson Mandela's and Mother Teresa's, but the titans of capitalism that are heroes. They are actually superheroes in the old-fashioned way. By figuring out how to make the most of their talent, they opened up new vistas to society. I looked at the Errasuri sculpture in my iPhone, and then I thought that in my view, heroes are the ones who speak truth to power. I like to quote from Polish poet Czesław Milosz. In a room where people unanimously maintain a conspiracy of silence, one word of truth sounds like a pistol shot. But heroism has also to do with ambition, with invention, with the act of making life easier, faster, better. We judge people all the time. It's a natural disposition. Judging others is a way to define ourselves. But it is also a strategy to recognize, with regret perhaps, that others can do things we cannot. Yes, heroism is the capacity to recognize greatness in others. The world changes, but the need for heroes remains. Otherwise, we would be forever trapped in our own mediocrity. Next time on In Contrast. One of the things that have happened as a result of globalization that would have happened anyway, globalization was going to happen, 
is that when so many people, especially so many blue-collar men, lost their jobs to globalization, I think that they lost their sense of themselves, not just as men, but as contributing members to society. They used to know what their place was in the kind of fabric of society, and they were beginning to feel like that that was now gone, and they began to look around for reasons. Richard Russo on the next In Contrast. To see illustrations of our In Contrast guests by Burns Maxey and for over 50 previous episodes of our In Contrast podcast, visit our website at nepr.net. Help spread the word about In Contrast by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. We had production assistance from Ethan Bakuli. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. Amilan Stavans, thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. <laughs>